This podcast is brought to you by Bruner Communications, your best resource for public speaking, presentation, and storytelling skills. Visit lizbruner.com and take your skills to the next level. Sometimes life sends you down a path that you never expected. That's exactly what happened to my guest today, who went from being an executive secretary to founder and executive director of an organization that is helping families dealing with addiction and recovery. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Live Your Best Life with Liz Bruner. I'm Liz, and my guest was so motivated by her own personal experiences, she was empowered to use her voice to bring about change. Joanne Peterson, welcome to my podcast. Thank you so much. I'm really honored to be here. Thank you. Well, 18 years ago, you started the organization called Learn to Cope, in part because you had nowhere to turn when you discovered that your own son was addicted to opioids. How did you make that discovery? Well, it happened by accident, really. The name of my organization, Learn to Cope, that's what I was doing. As a child, I did have a sibling that struggled with addiction and mental health issues, my brother, and then also a sister with alcoholism. I watched my mother as a young child just struggle by herself. Back in those days, you didn't talk about mental health. You didn't Mm -hmm. talk about addiction. It was something that you swept under the rug because of stigma. And I would ride around with my mom trying to find halfway houses for my brother, or he'd be incarcerated, and I'd go visit him with her on Sundays. And I was very young, and I think she was a single parent. She was a wonderful, wonderful mother. I'm sure she didn't know what to do, even with me, whether I should go to see him in that position. But I'm grateful that she did because I learned so much from it. What I did not understand then or even when it happened was that I was going to, the torch was going to be passed to me. You know, it happened to my oldest son, his senior year in high school, when OxyContin started seeping under people's doorways and He tried it. Unfortunately, he made that decision. He was always, you know, a smart kid, always was in sports. And, you know, I did everything I can, my husband and I, to raise him to be safe and talk to him. But it still, it happened anyway. But it did bring us down a very dark road. As you're thinking back to that time and making that discovery, You saw him losing weight. He seemed a bit depressed. You even brought him to a crisis center. Did it ever occur to you that he might be hooked on drugs? He was home a lot. And I I used to think, you know, are you depressed? Are you okay? Because before that, he would go to work. He'd go to school. He always had a million friends. We'd water ski and camp in the summer. He went from that to not wanting to get out of bed and not going to bed during the night. The confusing part about this for me was I had seen the disease schizophrenia in my sister. And part of that when she was young was being up all night and sleeping all day. She didn't want to go to school anymore. She had undiagnosed mental illness really is what I know now from what I've learned. So I thought he was experiencing what my sister was. So I would go And my first crisis center was, I think my son might have bipolar or something. And within minutes, they did diagnose him with that. But the symptoms of that were actually, he was using heroin. And I had no idea. But it's the same type of symptoms. 
Wow. And so you, you take him to a crisis center, you try to get help. There's really very little that you know and very few places that you can turn. You put him in a detox situation, he gets treatment, and then your insurance basically says, well, he's already been here. We can't help him anymore. When he relapses, he ends up in jail. Mm-hmm. I will be completely honest with you. The first detox wouldn't be the last. And that's still today. When we have new families coming to our meetings, they think, well, now everything's okay. And what they don't understand and what we have to sadly tell them in a very calm way and with full of compassion is this is going to be a long road. I didn't know that. There was no one really to tell me that. The meetings I went to, which are wonderful for some today, but I needed more than that. I needed an education. When he ended up in trouble, which is the course that this drug, opiates, takes, I became almost suicidal. I didn't think I could live with this again. I, I thought, I don't want to go back to jails. I went there for years watching my mother suffer, and I just didn't want to do that. I said, no, there's got to be another way. I know there is. I need, we need to learn about this. Instead of just sitting around and getting resources, I wanted an education at this point on addiction and why this happens and how do you beat it. I want to go back to your family for just a moment because I know you believe that genetics do play a role in someone becoming an addict as well as somebody suffering from mental illness. I can't even imagine what it must have been like for you living with that. And you just said a moment ago how, you know, you'd been to so many jails trying to take care of your mom and how that impacted you to the point where you're, you're almost suicidal with your son. As you think back on it now, how did that impact your life besides having those feelings of suicide? I became dangerously depressed for a while. I didn't want to talk to my friends or my family because I thought that I would be blamed for this. We had been stigmatized so much over the years when I was a, a young girl, and I thought I did everything I could. How, how could this happen again? I went right back to crawling under that rock, just like my mom probably, and I started to go into that tunnel. Mm-hmm. It scared me, and then there was an incident that happened where it got into the newspaper. That's when the lion woke up in my belly because the incident, obviously, I knew why this happened. There was no violence or anything, but it involved stealing. Our family was outed, and and I thought, you know something? I am not going to sit back and allow anyone to judge or stigmatize my children, my younger children, Me or my husband as a parent, there's a problem out there, and it's happening to a lot of kids. And at that point, I had already met other people in our town, young young women that had wonderful lives and then tried this drug that was really out there. I said, I'm going to tell the story behind the story. My son was now incarcerated, and by then he was feeling very remorseful and Mm you know, regretting things. But that really brought it out. Like, I was fighting for our dignity. Mm. You have said that you never, ever wanted to start any kind of a business or an organization. And you used to work for the National Fire Protection Association. And there was a forum on Oxy. 
And you ended up speaking in front of that group. It was around 200 people. Your son was still in jail at this time. And that really kind of was the beginning of Learn to Cope. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that experience. I was at work one day, and a co-worker threw a flyer down onto my desk, and it said, there's a stranger in town, what parents need to know. It was a Norfolk County DA, Bill Keating, and he was warning the public, and I was so happy to see this. So I called his office, and I told her, I'm one of those families, and I'm so happy that he's doing this. And a few minutes later, he called me back, and he said, I would love for you to come and talk about your experience. And I had never done that before, so I agreed to do it. I felt like we had nothing to lose. It, at that point in my life and my son's, I thought his life is over. He's going to die. That's what I thought. Or he's just going to end up like my brother and just have this awful in and out incarceration life. <laughs> I wanted to help my son and myself. And so I get up on that stage and I had written everything down on a piece of paper and I ended up crying all over it. So the ink, the blurred ink. <laughs> I just threw it. And I just remember saying, I just want my son back. And when I was saying that and crying in front of all these people, I was looking out there and there were mothers and fathers crying and nodding their heads. And I thought, ooh, I am not the only one here that this is happening to. And that was it. That was the night that I met other people. And a reporter came up and said, what is the name of your organization? And I said, I don't have one. I said, but I have an email address, and I'd love to hear from other parents because I suddenly started feeling better because I was meeting these people that knew exactly what I was going through. And my email address was learn2cope2001 at Yahoo, back when we had Yahoo. And I would go on the Internet and research things, and I never wanted my name out there, so I was learn to cope. The reporter put at the end of the story, Joanne would like to hear from other people, and he publish that address, I heard from so many people. And this was before Facebook. There was no, we didn't even have cell phones yet. And so then I, I had the dial up at home. And <laughs> if my younger kids wanted to use the phone, they'd be like, Mom, get off the computer. And I'd be like, Dear Abby. And it just went from there. What I love about that is you said a moment ago, the lion in you began to roar. And this was really the time when you you used your voice to tell the other side of the story. And you had Learn to Cope, which then became the name of your organization. Learn to Cope, you describe it as a peer-led support group. What kinds of services do you offer for people? It started out as a, a group. Now I would call it a network, really. And when they come to Learn to Cope, they're looking for answers. So we have to let them know right away. We're not professionals. We're peers. So we can't give you all the answers, but what you will get is support, education, resources, and hope. And if a meeting has those four components, mm -hmm. then that's a successful meeting. And that goes back to the education piece, because yes. I feel like knowledge is power and knowledge is healing. Because when this happens to your family member, mm -hmm. the first thing you do is blame yourself. With the education and hearing from experts, we have guest speakers that come and speak. We've had book authors. We have people that work in all different pathways of treatment. And then by 2011, we became a pilot for the Department of Public Health for nasal naloxone, which is also called Narcan, mm -hmm. which reverses an overdose. 
So we're able to train people on how to use that and actually save the life of somebody in the home. I'm curious because, and I'm sure listeners from around the world are wondering too, there are so many programs out there that are treatment programs, but how is this different from those kinds of programs? And even similarly, for example, AA, there are many programs that are out there that are like that. How does your group, Learn to Cope, differ from those kinds of organizations? So we're there for the families of those who are suffering from substance use disorder or addiction, I still call it. And that, I find, for me, has been the key to healing. Mm -hmm. And I feel like, you know, Al-Anon is an amazing program. Al-Anon is teaching people how to take care of themselves, which is super important, and we do that too. But we took it to another level. We allow people to ask questions. We have guest speakers. We have a website where people can communicate seven yeah. days a week. We Now we've even, since COVID, we've added so many more programs. I wanted to ask you about that because I would imagine, at least as of this recording, we're still dealing with COVID. God willing, we're coming out of it, but we're still dealing with it. How has that impacted the work that you do? And do you think that more people have been struggling with addiction as a result of the pandemic? We had to pivot completely from in-person meetings, which we were in 11 out of 14 counties in Massachusetts. We have a Florida group. I have a team of 14 people besides myself. I don't do this alone anymore. We had to quickly pivot those meetings to virtual and get Zoom. And luckily, we were already starting to use Zoom, so the training wasn't as hard as we thought. But in the last two years... All of our groups have still been able to get the support that they need. There was a lot of training involved for our facilitators on how to use Zoom, and then also members on how to use Zoom. We were still able to get Narcan out to people and train them by delivering it to their mailboxes or sending it in the mail after training them online. But one of the things I noticed, which I don't like to use the word silver lining, but there was a silver lining for our population is... One, we've had more diversity. We were able to start a bilingual group for Spanish-speaking families. And I think it's been more comfortable for people that were afraid to walk into a room or that lived too far away from a meeting initially. And now all they have to do is go on their computer, and they're getting all the same support. They're just not in the same room. Yeah. Approximately 2.1 million Americans have an opioid use disorder. What are the signs, what are the symptoms that family members, loved ones should be looking out for? Because addicts are really good at hiding their addiction. With opioid addiction in particular, one is they get sick a lot if they don't continue to use the drugs, and that can look like flu symptoms. They could have stomach aches all the time, or they might be nauseous, they start to lose weight, and they, they just don't look healthy anymore. They lose their ambition to really be around family and friends. Sometimes they struggle working every day because it becomes a full-time job to not go into withdrawal. So if they're not getting it prescribed to them, or even if they are getting it prescribed and they're using so much of it that they're running out and the doctor keeps looking at them like, where's all your medication? Or they have oh, I lost my prescription, I lost Mm. my prescription bottle. A lot of good excuses. (laughs) All kinds of weird things pop up, but usually a parent's or spouse's or loved one's 
intuition will kick in and tell you something's wrong. You just don't always know what that is right away. But their eyes, there's something about their eyes. They get very pinned pupils. Mm -hmm. So they get a different look to them. And they might not be as ambitious with hygiene. They're Mm -hmm. disappearing all the time, very secretive calls, never has any money if they have a job and their money's gone within days. So things like that are are definitely warning signs. Pay attention, pay attention. How is your son doing now? I'm so proud. He's um, in long, long long-term recovery. He's put together an amazing life for himself, something that I always knew he would do before this. And during it, I was afraid that that wouldn't happen, but it has. And he's Mm -hmm. an upstanding father, husband, you know, homeowner, does very well in life. You must be so proud and so I am. so <laughs> thankful at the same time. I am. I'm, I'm grateful. I almost sometimes feel survivor guilt, though, because so many people lose their kids. Yeah. And I did lose my niece three years ago to a fentanyl overdose, so it still hits my family hard. I'm very, very happy, but I also, at the same time with what I've learned about this, is it's a disease. Once It might start off as a an experiment, but quickly turn into a chronic condition. Mm-hmm. And once you have it, you have to really be careful taking care of yourself to make sure it doesn't come back to bite again. Yeah. You've also made a difference working with legislators to help more families, and you had an interesting project. You were invited to be on the Impact board member for the Grammy and Tony-nominated Broadway hit Jagged Little Pill. And that play is actually based on the 1995 mm-hmm. Alanis Morissette's life. What was your role? Oh, I loved that work. So I was an impact board member where, before it hit Broadway, I had to watch the scripts and make sure that the piece on opioids was authentic. Um, without giving the whole story away, the main character, MJ, becomes addicted to prescription pills and her family doesn't know. So. I had to go back several times and watch the run-throughs before it hit Broadway. And there were a few things that I was able to write notes on that, mm, that might not really happen this way or, or that way. Or, you know, they were pr- pronouncing Narcan, Narcon. And I'm like, no, it's Narcan. <laughs> you know, things that like an audience member like myself would really, it would jump right out. One of the things that really jumped out to me was there's a scene where there's an overdose. At one point... It's very sad and very powerful, but then there's a line that makes the audience laugh, and I said, oh, no, 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 you cannot do that, because if somebody is in the audience and they've lost somebody, maybe change the wording a little bit so that the audience doesn't laugh, and they did, they listened to me, and as someone that has lost someone and might have a little bit of PTSD from that scene myself, I thought, you might want to change that. It wasn't intentional, but it was, I was glad I was there. Yeah. Was doing that role a healing experience for you? It definitely was because I guess I realized I do have a really good purpose in life. There was a time I felt like I didn't. And maybe all of the trials and tribulations lead me to at least doing something that can make a difference in people's lives. And that experience for me, and Alanis Morissette, I loved her album. I mean, I used to play that over and over again in the 90s. And I thought, wow, how could this be? And 
And the nice thing is they keep in touch with me. So I would love to help with more projects like that. It was very fulfilling for me. You know, listening to you and reading your book, you really inspired me. I have to say that because I started walking again and I discovered your podcast and I listened to you. And, you know, I've been doing this 18 years and I I thought, I still feel like there's more I need to do. I just don't know what it is. And I related to you so much. And I'm just getting to that point, you know, with my work that I want to change it up, you know, within the next couple of years. And I'm exploring that. And I don't know what that is. You know, it might be writing. It might be getting more involved with Broadway or things like that. I don't know. But listening to you, I thought, this is the right track. I'm, I'm thinking about it, and maybe it will someday come to fruition, and I'll, I'll look back like you and say, wow, I'm glad I, I jumped off that cliff. <laughs> I'm deeply touched oh. by that. Thank you so much for saying that. Yeah. This organization, Learn to Cope, is funded by the Massachusetts Department of Public Health, and you have, I think, 25 chapters throughout Massachusetts and one in Florida. How can people get connected to you if they don't live in Massachusetts mm-hmm. or Florida? So they can go to our website, and it's learnwiththenumber2cope.org, and they can fill out the Stay Connected form. And we do have a national meeting now that meets on the first and third Tuesday of every month, and it starts at 9 p.m. Eastern time so that the Western California and other areas, Midwest, can join. And it's amazing because I hear the parents that are joining this meeting, and I think they are where we were 10 years ago. They don't have the services that we do in this state, and it's really, I'm really glad that we were able to start it. And we also have wellness Friday nights with healing yoga, sleep yoga. Um, We have the bilingual group, so if someone speaks Spanish and wants to go on to a Spanish meeting, and then we also have webinars where we have guests. So maybe you'll be a guest for one of our webinars. We'll we'll have to talk. (laughs) (laughs) Again, I want to give that website to everyone. It's so important. It's Learn to Cope, and that is L-E-A-R-N, the word learn, the number two, and then cope.org, learntocope.org. Joanne, thank you for your bravery, for sharing your story, for using your voice to make a difference because you absolutely are and you are filling a purpose in your life. And I say congratulations and thank you for doing that. You're offering so much hope to people who are trying to learn to cope. Thank you for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Mm. And thanks to all of you for listening around the world. If you know someone who may be suffering from addiction, please let them know about Learn to Cope. There is help available and an opportunity to turn their life around and live their best life. Until next time, be well. This podcast is brought to you in part by Fast Twitch Media, helping people tell their stories and giving them worldwide reach. The future is in the cloud and Fast Twitch Media can take you there. Be your best digital self. Check out fasttwitchmedia.space. Thank you.